Uh, I did miss being with you guys last week. I was away in California hanging out with some family and going to, yes, a football game. <laughs> we won that one, so that was a good thing. Um, and that's okay, because one of the things we like to say at Harvest is we love to take God very seriously and ourselves not so seriously. So uh, thank you for putting up with all the ridiculous football talk the last couple of weeks. I'm sure it will stop at some point, as soon as Jordan quits giving announcements. Um, <laughs> but in the meantime, uh, it is a joy to come, laugh at ourselves, have fun, but also take God very seriously. I did miss being together in a church. It was great to fellowship in my dad's church and meet some people there, but uh, I'm excited to be back with you and, and to start a new sermon series in what is probably one of the most bizarre, um, perhaps least understood books in the Old Testament. That might be a little bit of a stretch, but I don't think so. And I'm referring to the Old Testament book of Ezekiel. Now, I think a good way to dive into this and sort of reflects the experience I've had prepping for this uh, series of sermons that we're starting um, is to ask, uh, how many of you enjoy uh, roller coasters? Roller coaster fans? Yeah, daredevils out there? Okay, I'm not talking about the rides that like take you up a pole and just plunge you straight down because that's just wrong. Um, I mean, like, the, no, I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> but like, you know, roller coasters, like the old school roller coaster thing is like crank you up the hill nice and slow, right? Click, 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 and you can see everything around you by design, and so it, it's building anticipation, right? You're climbing up this big hill, and of course, the closer you get, you're looking out the sides, the ground is getting further and further away. It feels like you're in orbit. You know, you're not, but it always feels like you're a lot higher than you really are, and, and then when you get up there, you sort of see there's no track in front of you, and it creates this, oh, this sense of anticipation. Here comes the big drop, and then you finally see the drop, boom, and, you know, and then you go, and you're off on the ride. That's kind of the old school way to build a roller coaster and um, to engage in a thrill ride. Well, as many of you, I'm sure, know and have experienced, um, not all roller coasters are built the same. Uh, people are always looking for ways to kind of top the last thrill or whatever, and so there's like this new way to design roller coasters um, that's like the rocket launch version of a roller coaster. Anybody ever ridden a roller coaster like this, you know, where you go from like, you get in, you strap in, you're like, okay, here we go, and then boom, you're like zero to 60 and nothing point zilch flat. You know, it just launches you like a rocket with no warning. And then uh, lately, I had the chance to uh, ride a roller coaster. Some, some family and I uh, got together and met in Florida, actually. We're at Disney World for a little while. And they have a roller coaster there that is kind of a takeoff of the old Space Mountain idea where you're in the dark, so you can't really see the track in front of you. But Space Mountain's kind of tame as roller coasters go. It's just sort of cool because it's dark. Well, this one takes you in the dark, but you're doing like flips and curls and spins and all this stuff, and you can't really see what's coming. And it's one of these that just like launches you so fast that when the thing takes off, it's like your stomach is 50 yards behind you, you know? It, it speeds up so quick. It's just your breath is taken away. And just when your brain is catching up with what's going on, boom, you're flipped upside down and you can't see what's going on. It's a wild ride. I had a lot of fun with it and uh, went around again with my son and his cousins and we were riding it again and, and I got paired up with this other guy who was with an odd number group of people. So you're sitting side by side. So here's this guy who's a stranger and it's sort of like there's this minimal little, you get out of the loading area and it turns a corner and you're ready to launch, you know? And so there's like this music and it's all building up the tension. And he said something to me, total stranger, never met him before. And I can't remember what it was. It was just something like, so, like, is this a good ride, or what's the big deal about this thing, or whatever? And I said, have you not ridden this yet? And he said, no. And I said, oh, well, I rode it once earlier today. All I can say is, like, just hang on, okay? <laughs> because you're about to be just launched. You're about to be separated from your stomach. So just trust me, it's wild from the instant. He's like, oh, 
okay. It's not that he didn't believe me. I don't think he was being dismissive. He was just kind of like, all right, whatever. We'll see. It's a roller coaster, you know? So we go, boom, the rocket takes off. And we're flying around, and his stomach is way back there. And then, boom, then we go into the thing, and we're upside down. You can't see anything. And he just starts screaming, oh, my gosh. Except he didn't say gosh, but this is church on a Sunday, so we'll edit it, you know, for family friendliness. Um, and, and when he got all that out, and that took him like 10 or 15 seconds to say, he took a deep breath and said it again, oh my God, I am just dying laughing, <laughs> riding next to this guy. The roller coaster was fun. Listening to him get freaked out by the roller coaster was fun. And looking back now on the experience, I, I'm not actually sure which one I enjoyed more, to be honest with you. <laughs> Just listening to this guy was hilarious. The book of Ezekiel is kind of like that, (laughs) okay? It is a roller coaster launch that takes you from zero to 60 and nothing point zilch flat with almost no warning and very little um, prep. And it's also like none of the other prophetic books that came before it in that regard. Uh, God had spoken in the Old Testament through, you know, to Abraham and to Moses and, and to David and, and to, to prophets like um, Eli and, and, and some of the judges and some of these other people. And, and there was a lot of prophecy. Prophecy at this point in the Bible is not new, but it was sort of analogous to those old school roller coasters. God would say something. I mean, you know, anytime God shows up and speaks, it's a big deal. Don't get me wrong, but he would speak pretty plainly. He would tell the prophet what was going to happen and say, go tell the people, and then sure enough, that would eventually happen. So, I mean, they, they knew what was coming, and they could either, you know, listen to God or not and deal with the consequences either way. So it was miraculous. It was amazing when God would show up, but it was pretty spelled out in advance. That's not how the book of Ezekiel goes. Um, if you open up the book of Ezekiel and start reading, we are given the briefest of information in the setting. Literally three verses in Ezekiel chapter 1 of setting. And then we are launched full speed with no warning into this wild vision that the prophet had, the likes of which had never occurred up to this point in the Old Testament. This is like nothing we've ever seen before. And with no warning, we are just taken along with the prophet off into this wild visionary experience. Today we start a seven-sermon series that will walk through this Old Testament book, kind of taking in the scope of the whole thing to see its, its message and its meaning. And I think the best way to start a sermon series on the book of Ezekiel is to start it the way the book starts it. Uh, it launches from zero to 60 and nothing point zilch flat with the merest bit of setting. And so we're going to do the same thing and just let the book introduce itself to us this morning. We're going to look at the first couple of chapters and kind of get an overview of the entire thing. And, and my hope is that by the time we leave, we'll have this morning, we'll have a pretty good idea of, of what the book of Ezekiel is doing and its message. And we will also have some idea of how we're supposed to be responding to it, what God's purposes for putting the book together this way are. So with that in mind, let's look at this little bit of sparse setting that we're given. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 1. It simply reads this, in the 30th year, that's probably the 30th year of Ezekiel's life, the the man Ezekiel for whom the book is named is writing this, Um, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, I was among the exiles by the Kabar Canal, and the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. We don't know anything about this guy at this point. This This is the introduction. This is all we get. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin, 
The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the Kebar Canal, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. Okay, that's it. That's the introduction. And then we get launched into a vision that you do... You are helped in understanding by knowing a little bit of the background. To an Old Testament Jew, this is written about 600 B.C., a little bit uh, later than that, about 600 years before the time of Jesus. And if you were an Israelite alive at the time, you would have understood some of the background that would have made a lot of sense, even though those first couple verses. So just a brief word to help us modern 21st century Americans maybe get our heads around some of the detail that we're about to see in this sparse bit of setting before the roller coaster launches us into the stratosphere. Um, the setting puts uh, the Ezekiel amongst the exiles in the land of the Chaldeans. That's what historians call the ancient Babylonian empire. Uh, basically, what had been happening at this point is the earlier promise um, of the Israelites being united together as a nation, living in the promised land, or what we call today Palestine, worshiping God and enjoying all of his blessings, all of that promise has pretty much at this point in history been completely dismantled. Israel's no longer united. They have been divided. There was a civil war. So if you know your Old Testament history, you're familiar with this. There's actually two separate nations. Uh, one of those nations had already been conquered by a different empire a few years earlier than this, and so it was pretty much already gone. So there's only a little remnant of the ancient Israelite kingdom left huddled around the city of Jerusalem, and most of the Jews are being deported away. They're not necessarily living in the promised land. They're not close to God. They're not experiencing his blessings. In fact, there's only one little shred of, of the old promise left. And that shred is the fact that the temple, the Jewish temple, is still standing in Jerusalem at this time. This is the temple that Solomon built. This was the great and glorious house of the Lord that was to be the central point of the capital of God's holy nation, none of which ever really came to pass. But the temple is still there. And the Ark of the Covenant, the ornate box that that God's presence was especially associated with, was there inside the holiest, most innermost room of the temple, and it was still standing in Jerusalem. And so they would hold on to that shred of hope. God has not completely abandoned us yet. Well, at this point, the Babylonian Empire was now dominant. It pretty much taken over everything in the Middle East. Uh, They had attacked Jerusalem already in the past, but they didn't invade the city. They left it standing. Um, The remaining Israelites pretty much just surrendered. They had to. And um, so they left Jerusalem intact. The temple is still there. But they ruled Palestine, and they had taken a bunch of Israelites captive and hauled them forcibly off, forcibly relocated them to Babylon, which was the modern-day nation of Iraq, if you're familiar with the geography of the Middle East, several hundred miles away from Jerusalem. And this is actually an ancient um, thing that archaeologists have dug up on a wall somewhere in the Middle East. It was a depiction from the ancient times of the Babylonians with the soldier in the back hauling the uh, Jewish exiles off to Babylon. Among that, that group of exiles who were forcibly relocated to Babylon is a young priest named Ezekiel. So here he is now. He's a priest. He wants to be a leader of his people. He wants to lead his people in worshiping God, and he's now living in Babylon against his will, forcibly relocated to a foreign land where the people are different, they speak a different language, they worship different gods, and they're sort of subjected to these people. And he can't go back. He wants to go back home, and he can't. 
That's the setting. And so when he refers to the fifth year of the exile, he's now been living in Babylon with some other Israelites for five years, hoping and praying that God is somehow going to show up and save them. And their only hope was the fact that Jerusalem still stood and the temple was still there. Surely God wouldn't let his holy city fall, would he? I mean, that was the very center of God's plan. And frankly, when it comes to what's, what's visible, that's all of God's plan that's left is the fact that Jerusalem was still there at this point in history and Israelites were still living in it and the temple was there. Surely God wouldn't let his holy city and his glorious temple fall. Would he? That's the setting for the book of Ezekiel. Now we come to the blast off, the vision. Without warning, Ezekiel's sitting there outside this refugee camp where he and the other Israelites were living next to an irrigation canal that siphoned water off the Euphrates River to water the gardens of the Babylonians. And he's kind of sitting there. Um, He doesn't really say what he was feeling at the moment, but it's not too hard to imagine that they were maybe uh, homesick, maybe got a little bit of time off work, a little time to sit there and reflect and think about the homeland and wish that they were back there. And without warning, Ezekiel and his readers are launched full blast with no warning by an apocalyptic vision the likes of which hadn't been seen in the Bible before. This is the first time we run into what Bible scholars call apocalyptic literature. It's prophecy, but it's heightened with all of this wild symbolic imagery and these deep visions. This was was new. This was not something Ezekiel or any of the Israelites were used to. These kinds of visions are full of bizarre imagery, Uh, Chapter 1, which is describing the vision he saw, is full of tons of detail as Ezekiel is trying to capture enough words, to put enough words on the page to to sort of capture what he is seeing. And you can almost see him sort of struggling in his word choice. Uh, It breaks into four simple parts, chapter 1. He says, as I looked in verse 4, a stormy wind came out of the north and a great cloud with brightness all around it and fire flashing forth continuously. So there's this huge cloud with this bright thing in the center and as he looks at what's in the center, he sees in the midst of it came a likeness. Again, you keep hearing this word likeness. This is an image. It's a symbolic picture of something of four living creatures. These are angelic creatures. And he goes on to describe these creatures and they're utterly bizarre. They have like human bodies, but they have wings that are stretched out and touching one another. He mentions that a couple times. That's significant. We'll come back to that in a second. They have one head with four faces, kind of weird, like one's like an ox face and one's a human face and like one's a lion face and one's an eagle face and, and then he's got like legs like a, a calf. I mean, there's these bizarre creatures. You're like, what is going on? And as if that wasn't weird enough, you drop down to verse 15 after he finishes describing these creatures and he says, now as I looked at the creatures, I saw a wheel on the earth beside the living creatures, one for each of the four of them, and he goes on and he describes these wheels that were on the ground next to each one of these living creatures. Um, Verse 18, drop down there, the rims of the wheels were tall and awesome. The rims of the four were full of eyes all around. So you've got this image of a wheel within a wheel that are big and dominant, and they got eyeballs in them. This is getting creepy. This is what he's seeing, and he's just hit full force with his vision. And then it goes on, verse 22. Over the heads of these four living creatures was the likeness of an expanse. That's basically a platform. And so he sees this platform that these four angels are holding up. And then lastly, verse 26, above that expanse or that platform, over their heads there was the likeness of a throne. 
In appearance, it was like sapphire, and seated above it, the likeness of a throne was the likeness of a human appearance. In essence, you know, sometimes a picture is worth a thousand words. Um, (laughs) This is one artist's really kind of rough sketch. This is not supposed to be detailed. It's just to give us an idea of, like, if you read Ezekiel chapter one, you're getting lost in all the words. This is basically what he's describing, something that looked like this. This is a screen capture off a video from uh, the Bible Project, which I referenced in a sermon a couple of weeks ago. You can see this introduction video to the book of Ezekiel on thebibleproject.com. Highly recommended, very well done. Basically, you've got these four creatures, these angelic-like creatures, that are holding up this platform with the throne of God on it, and they got wheels, they're mobile, and it's moving, okay? So the bottom line is, at the end of the day, what Ezekiel is looking at is a vision of the glory of God. Now, why all the the detail, and why so much bizarre detail? I mean, let's face it, this is weird, right? This is weird. It's been interesting when I tell people, hey, we're going to be studying the book of Ezekiel. I've gotten lots of reactions. A lot of people have said like, wow, cool. I've never really understood it. I'm looking forward to that. The other reaction I've often gotten sometimes from the same people is, um, wow, interesting. Ezekiel, (laughs) that's that weird book I read once and went, whoa, that was weird. And I just turned the page and said, can we just go talk about Jesus because he's nice? (laughs) Like he's somebody I feel like I can understand. I mean, honestly, you start reading these these images of like thunder that shakes your chest. It's so loud and, and, and bizarre creatures and wheels with eyeballs in them. And you're like, if this is supposed to be heaven, I'm not sure I really want to go. <laughs> That's, that is not making me long for my home if this is what heaven really looks like. Ezekiel recognizes that what this is is a symbolic or image. He keeps using that term likeness. It's a picture. It's not necessarily a photograph of what heaven's going to look like when you get there, but it is a picture depicting the glory of God. He says at the end of chapter one, when he finishes describing the vision, such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Now, how does Ezekiel know that this is the glory of God? He's, he's captivated. He's launched into this vision. He's blown away. His stomach is left 50 yards behind him, and he's going, whoa, what is this? I've never experienced anything like this before. If you think it's creepy to read about it, imagine how he must have felt experiencing it. And yet, in the midst of all of the, the, the shock or the emotion or whatever else he was experiencing, he recognizes, I'm looking at God. And he knows he's looking at God because the details are not accidental. The details are all coming from earlier in the Bible. Ezekiel knows he's looking at, a, at an image of the glory of God because he knows his Old Testament. He's a priest. He's read the Old Testament. He's, he knows the Bible, and particularly the book of Exodus. Think back to when Moses, originally uh, under God's direction, had the Israelites create the tabernacle, which eventually became the temple, when they made it in the first place. And they actually built the ark, which was this ornately decorated box that was covered in gold. And there were all these very detailed, specific instructions on how they were supposed to do that. So they built this building, and they built this box, and they put the Ten Commandments in it and some other things, the manna and those other kinds of things. And when they got it all done... At the end of the book of Exodus, God's glory appears in a manifest way, in a cloud, a bright shining cloud, just as it had up on Mount Sinai with thunder and lightning and bright cloud. Do you start to see some of the details? It's the same things Ezekiel saw. And yet now it's not up on Mount Sinai. God's glory manifests itself over the top of the ark, the box. God had told them, when you make the lid for this box, I want you to make a couple of 
angelic creatures, little statues out of gold, and they're going to have wings, and the wings are going to stretch out and touch each other. And God says it's at that place where the angel's wings touch that my presence will come down and I will speak to the people through Moses or through the other priests in a very special way. God's presence was associated with these angelic beings in the temple. And so when Ezekiel is describing this, he's careful to point out a couple of different times in chapter one that these angelic creatures have these wings spread out and they're touching and above them is this throne and he recognizes what he's seeing. He said, this is all biblical code language, as it were. I don't mean code in the sense of mysterious. I just mean like, this is specifically referencing, like it's all saying, this is the presence of God. Psalm chapter 80, verse one, calls God the one who is enthroned above the cherubim, or the angels. And that's again, coming right out of the imagery associated with the ark. And so here he sees this vision of angelic creatures, and there is God enthroned above them. So he recognizes what's happening. This is a vision of the presence of God and the glory of God. Now that leads us to the key problem. This is what the book of Ezekiel is really all about. There's a key problem that this vision presents and Ezekiel and his readers would have seen it right away. The problem is simply this. What is the glory of God, that is the presence of God, doing in Babylon? This isn't right. His special presence isn't supposed to be here amongst us as the exiles in Babylon, this this pagan nation that, that doesn't worship God and doesn't care about God. His presence is supposed to be in Jerusalem, in his temple with the ark where he's always said that he was going to be and where he's been in a special way for generations. So Ezekiel recognizes what he's seeing, but he also recognizes the stunning problem. What is God's presence doing outside of the temple in Jerusalem? And that is the key problem that the book of Ezekiel is designed to address and to explore. Here's how the book of Ezekiel tackles that essential question. It really, it's going to really answer three questions for us, and we're going to talk about these here in a little bit more detail in just a moment. There's really three questions. If you get these three questions, you'll understand what Ezekiel is all about. First of all, the question Why is God's glory moving away from the temple? Why is it not in Jerusalem? The first part of the book, the first 11 chapters are designed to explain and answer that question. Secondly, what does that mean for us as God's people? If God's glory has left the temple, if God is abandoning the old covenant he had with us, what does that mean for us? And the middle part of the book is designed to explore that. And it's really bad news. And then the third and final question is this, what hope does that leave us with? And the last part of the book is designed to answer that. The book of Ezekiel contains some of the most powerful and exhilarating hope in all of the Bible. That's kind of where this goes. Those three sections really form kind of the the outline of the book, if you will, and maybe because a picture is worth a thousand words, um, the best way to do this is to display it. And so uh, we have a video, or sorry, a a picture, a graphic that is kind of sketching out this flow within Ezekiel. You may have noticed when you walked in on the floor, on the edges of these pews, there's copies of this. If you're on the edge of the pews and you want to reach down, there's some up in the balcony there too. Reach down and grab them and just, you know, take one and hand them down um, the rows. And feel free to get up, move around if you need to. That's fine. Um, If there's, if we run out some, we probably got, we got more than enough. So just wave your hand and 
We'll get one of these in everybody's hands. I think maybe visually seeing this laid out is really helpful, and particularly if you're a visual learner and you want to doodle on it or sketch on it, this may be a good way to get, get our heads around what Ezekiel is saying. Um, I uh, appreciate especially Lori Miller, one of our members, um, allowing me to commandeer some of her artistic talents to make this. I asked Lori to do this for us, and she did. So Lori, thank you very much. Very much appreciate this. She put a lot of work into this. So absolutely, give her a hand. I was sitting there thinking like, you know, the best thing to, the best way to explain this would just be to like draw it. And so I drew it and I went, <laughs> I'm not even good at stick figures. It was horrible. I said, well, I know somebody who could draw. Hey, Lori, would you be willing? She said, yes. Thank you very much. This look a thousand times better than what I have. Um, but what you can see on this, um, this sheet, if you've got it with you, it's the same things up on the screen, is you can see kind of the three sections. That first and top section is all about the glory of God. And you'll notice a, de- a depiction of the temple building on the left and the glory of God is sort of leaving it to the right, to the east, which is significant. We'll talk about that next week. The first part is about God's glory leaving the temple. And why is that the case? That's chapters one through 11 of Ezekiel, 48 chapters in the book. The first 11 is all about God abandoning the covenant that he made with his people through Moses, or what we call the old covenant in the language of the Bible. God is abandoning that covenant as depicted by the temple and the ark. His glory is leaving the temple. He is going away because God's people have failed to live up to it. That's what the first 11 chapters are all about. Part two answers the question, what does that mean for us uh, in the 6th century BC as, as Israelites, God's people? What did that mean for them then? Has God totally abandoned them? Do they have no hope? The middle part of the book, chapters 12 through 33, is all about why the covenant failed. God accuses his people of repeated idolatry, failing to worship and honor him, profaning his name, not honoring him, not treasuring his infinite worth is ultimately beautiful. And he explains why this happens. Over and over again, we'll see this repeated theme. At the core, their hearts are rotten. God says, you as my people have hard hearts. And that's why the dominant graphic over that left is a heart that is rigid and brittle and cracked. It's broken. That is why you don't honor me. And because you don't honor me, I cannot be with you. This covenant did not work. And during this time, there were a lot of false prophets kind of saying, hey, the temple is still standing. As bad as it is, God is not going to give up on his people. He'll never go back on his promise. Don't worry, God's going to save us. And God sends Ezekiel to say, you tell him the truth. Yes, I am. I am going to judge you. Jerusalem will fall because judgment is coming. It's a sobering part of the book because we see how hard hearts and lack of honoring God leads to death and destruction. So then the third part of the book Uh, That section ends actually in chapter 33, which is a key pivot point in the book. They find out, in fact, that Jerusalem did fall as it did in 586 BC, for those of you historians keeping track at home. The Babylonians went back to Jerusalem, attacked it again. This time they actually attacked the city and they destroyed it. They wiped it out. They annihilated it. They leveled the temple. Solomon's temple was completely destroyed. And the Ark of the Covenant is gone. It disappears off the face of the earth and it disappears from human history. No matter what Indiana Jones tells you, uh, (laughs) 
the rediscovery of the lost Ark of the Covenant made for a great movie way back in the day. I'm showing my age there probably, but that's okay. Um, but it's purely fiction. In the real world, the Ark of the Covenant just disappeared. There's, there's no verifiable historical record of exactly what happened to it. In all likelihood, the Babylonians just destroyed it. They just smashed it and melted down the gold and used it for something else. It's gone. The temple's gone. The Ark is gone. Jerusalem is gone what, does that, what hope does that leave us with? Well, the last part of the book, chapters 34 to 48, is all about future hope. God says, you know how bad this is? Couldn't get much worse. And yet, still, yet, still, there is great hope. Because while I'm abandoning that covenant, I'm not completely abandoning you, my people. I'm gonna create a new covenant This is the era where the Bible started talking about a new covenant with Jeremiah, who was actually in Jerusalem at the time that Ezekiel was in Babylon prophesying about a new covenant, the same thing. God was starting to tell his prophets, guys, there is hope, but it's gonna look different. It's not gonna be about a temple and an ark and animal sacrifices and you trying hard to be holy people because that didn't work. There's gonna be a new arrangement. And so he promises that he himself will shepherd his people. Because all of the other leaders, from Adam through Abraham, through Moses, through King David, through all the prophets, through all the judges, they all failed to make Israel a people that was fully devoted to God. And so he says, you know what? Human shepherds who are sinners themselves could never make a holy people, so I will come do it myself. He says in Ezekiel, I will come shepherd my people myself. This is a reference to the Messiah the God becoming man. And he says, when I do come shepherd my people, myself, they will receive new hearts and I will make them a living people again. One of the most compelling and well-known pictures from the book of Ezekiel is in chapter 37 where Ezekiel gets this vision of a valley full of dry, dead bones and he sees it in another apocalyptic vision literally resurrect and become a living and breathing and healthy, vibrant people. God says, you are that dead spiritually and I will make you that new. Echoing language, by the way, from Genesis chapter one when God orig- and two, when God originally created humanity. He says, just as, as radically as I created humanity out of nothing, I will recreate you spiritually where there is no hope. It's a powerful, powerful set of images. And the result will be that there will be a new temple, as it were, quote-unquote. It's real interesting to see where the Bible goes with that idea, and we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. But the point is that, again, in their language, that's where God meets with his people, and he says, I will once again meet with you. And by the way, that really uh, bizarre vision that we saw um, in chapter one, this like glory of God, and it like disappears after uh, the first part of the book, You see it again in chapter 10 and then it just goes away. It reappears again at the end of Ezekiel and this time it's not going away from the temple, it's coming back. You see, the book of Ezekiel at the end of the day is a story of God's glory leaving the temple and the future day in which God's glory will return. That's maybe the simplest way to describe what this book is trying to get across. Everything about it is pointing us in that direction that God will be with his people once again. And that's the hope that we have. It ends um, the last couple of chapters with the vision of a desolate earth being remade into a new garden of Eden. This is the new heavens and the new earth. All echoing back to Genesis and going clear to Revelation. This is how the book ends. Ezekiel is, is a critical book in the Old Testament. It sits right at, a, at sort of a turning point in redemptive history where the old covenant is abandoned by God and the new covenant is promised. And God says, I myself will come and shepherd my people and make it happen. One more shot at summarizing Ezekiel's message. 
I'd put it this way. You can just sort of follow along with four simple steps where God says, this is what's wrong. And then he says in his promise, the reverse of all those four steps will take place. And that's the hope we have. It's one of these sort of like mirror image things. We've talked about these before. Scholars call it a chiastic structure. It just means that like the first and the last statements are parallel and the second and the second to last statements are parallel and so forth. It kind of looks like this. This is just my attempt, so maybe you can improve on it. The world of God's people is broken. Why are we in such a state? Because God has abandoned them. This is how Ezekiel starts to answer the question. And he's abandoned them because they profaned his name. They failed to treat him as glorious. And why did they do that? Because the root problem is they have hard hearts. That's the message of the book, but it doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. When God says, I come to shepherd my own people, when the Messiah comes, who we know is Jesus Christ, he will give his people new hearts, which parallels the fact they had hard hearts before, so that they can now love and honor him correctly, that we could actually see his infinite worth is ultimately beautiful and treat him the way he deserves to be treated, so that he can now return and be with his people again, so that the world will be whole and wonderful the way he always meant it to be. This is the gospel of Jesus in one book of the Bible, and it's all in the Old Testament. That's the promise that we have. I'll leave that up on the screen for a moment. I want to turn the corner in the few minutes we have left. And, and having maybe hopefully given a helpful visual and verbal overview of what this book is about, where it's going, I, I hope that's helpful. I hope you'll keep this graphic with you as you read through Ezekiel. And by the way, I, I urge you to, to do that. Um, read a couple chapters of Ezekiel every day. Take a few extra minutes, add it to whatever other Bible reading you're doing. And it can be easy to get lost in some of the individual prophecies of God against this nation or whatever. But if you keep the big picture in mind, it's easier to see where it's all going. And at that point, we have the opportunity to actually be impacted deeply because Ezekiel was impacted deeply by this. So hopefully with that hopefully helpful overview of the message of the book, I want to spend the last couple of minutes together just, just with a couple of reflections on how this should impact a modern Christian audience. Is this for us? And if so, in what way? If God wanted his people back then to know that the old covenant was gone and the new covenant would give them hope, how does it affect the modern Christian now? Is it any different? It's a good question. And I would begin answering it by pointing out that the very last book in the Bible, the book of Revelation, which we spent some time with as a church a couple of years ago, the very last book of the Bible written to Christians after the time of Jesus draws much of its inspiration and imagery from Ezekiel. In other words, the Apostle John, who is writing the book of Revelation to modern churches, was going back to the promises God made through Ezekiel and saying, those are still your promises and my promises. They haven't changed. The only thing that's changed now is that the shepherd God promised to send, which was yet future from Ezekiel's point of view, is now in the past for us. We know who the shepherd was. He's Jesus Christ. But we still look back to Ezekiel to see what Jesus' mission is and how he is working in us. All of the apocalyptic imagery, the bizarre visions that occur at the beginning and the end of the book of Ezekiel. The middle part of it is more normal prophecy, if you're familiar with the Old Testament prophets. a lot more pedestrian. But you get a lot of these bizarre images at the beginning and at the end. And these images can seem weird and foreign 
But they were weird and foreign to Ezekiel too. So I think we can take courage and some instruction by seeing his own reactions to what he experienced, which he actually takes pains to describe for us. One more look at chapter one of Ezekiel. He starts in verses one and two, as we mentioned, sitting on the banks of an irrigation canal near the refugee camp. The exiles had lived in for five years. He's pining for home. He's wondering when God is going to rescue them. He's focused on his world and on his situation, just like we all are, and wondering where God is in the midst of that. And God launches him from zero to 60 in zero point zilch flat, (laughs) hits him over the head like a two by four with this completely unexpected vision and answer. No warning, he just plunges him into this massive, breathtaking vision of his own glory leaving Jerusalem. Look at Ezekiel's response once he finishes describing the vision. The end of chapter one, verse 28. He says, halfway through verse 28, such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And then he describes his response. When I saw it, I fell on my face. And I heard a voice speaking to me. Chapter two, verse one. He said to me, this is now the one on the throne, God is speaking, son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak to you. And as he spoke to me, the spirit entered into me and set me on my feet and I heard him speaking. See what he's saying there? I was so floored by this vision that all the strength literally left me and I felt. He didn't gently bow down before God. He falls flat on his face and he can't even stand up. Even when God tells him, stand up, he's like, I can't do it. God has to literally pick him up to talk to him. So overwhelmed was he at this vision of the unfiltered glory of God. You cannot see God's glory and be unaffected. And I think the reverse is true as well. If I am unaffected when I think about God, I am not seeing his glory rightly. This was not intellectual theology for Ezekiel. This blew him away at the core of his being. And then look at the very end of this whole thing. Chapter 2 and the first part of chapter 3, God basically just gives Ezekiel his commission. He says, I want you to go tell the Israelites they're sinners. They're not going to want to hear it from you. You're going to have a rough road. Being a prophet was rough duty, (laughs) okay? But he says, go and speak my word, and people are going to reject you, but they're rejecting me, and that's just your job. And then the vision goes away. And so he concludes it, chapter 3, verse 14. The Spirit lifted me up and took me away, and I went in the bitterness, in the heat of my spirit the hand of the Lord being strong upon me. When he talks about the hand of the Lord, that's his kind of key phrasing to describe one of these apocalyptic visions. He's saying the vision was so intense, I went away in the bitterness, I went away in bitterness in the heat of my spirit. Verse 15, he says, I came back to the exiles at Tel Aviv who were dwelling by the Kebar Canal. So he's now back where this vision originally uh, came over him. And I sat there overwhelmed among them for seven days. I love how experiential and, if I could use the term poetic, uh, that language is. 
He's basically saying, listen, I, when it was over, it, it, it's like you know, he was still glowing hot in his spirit, like a, a stone that's been sitting in the desert sun all day long, and it's so hot you can't touch it, and then you move it into the shade, and then you touch it a couple minutes later, and it's still really hot. It's kind of starting to slowly cool, but it's still just bearing the heat from that experience of being exposed to the sun. He sees God's glory in this vision, and he understands how badly he and his fellow Israelites had failed to honor God's glory and he's so overwhelmed by it that even when the vision's over he's still radiating in the heat of his spirit at the glory of God and how far short of it we as his people have fallen he's so overwhelmed at the, office, at the awesomeness of God's glory so devastated at how badly they have failed to treasure it that he sits speechless among them for a week. He doesn't say a word. He says, I'm just overwhelmed. I don't even know where to start. He didn't run around and start telling people, look at this great vision I had. He just sat there. I can't find the words. Do you think this man was moved? It's pretty incredible stuff. Apocalyptic literature, these, these crazy visions, is designed, we, we talked about this when we looked at the book of Revelation, it's designed to not just inform our minds, although it, it does that, it's communicating truth, but it's doing much more than that. It's actually also designed intentionally to engage the emotions, and most of all, to fuel the imagination, which is one of the greatest treasures God has given us. He's given us our minds to understand the world in which we live, and he's given us our imaginations to understand beyond the world in which we live. What a treasure. When it comes to these apocalyptic visions, he wants to fuel both. God wants to help us see the reality of the spiritual world so that we can become consumed with what matters rather than being consumed with the lesser things of life. The book of Ezekiel leads us to ask Will God ever abandon me? The way he abandoned that old covenant and those old people? And the uncomfortable answer is, sure. Sure. If my heart does not treasure his glory for the highest and most valuable good that it is. Because he makes it very clear in the pages of this book. He cannot be where his name is profaned. He is God. That's why he left them. It's an uncomfortable question. It was an uncomfortable question back then too. But having posed that question, God also, in this book of Ezekiel, gives us the solution. There is hope, and the hope is Christ himself. Jesus Christ is the shepherd who will give us the kinds of hearts that do treasure God's glory rightly who see God's infinite worth as ultimately beautiful. You see, salvation as a Christian is not only an, a matter of external things, having my sins and my offenses against God forgiven, although by God's glory, to God's glory and by God's grace, it is definitely that. It is not just what we call justification, where a sinner accepts the payment of Christ, my payment for my sin that he paid for me on the cross, and because of that payment of sin, my sins can be forgiven and I can now be in right relationship with God again. All of that is absolutely true. It's at the very heart of the gospel of Jesus. But the gospel of Jesus does not stop there. It is not only the justification of the sinner before a holy God. It is also the transformation of someone whose heart wants to sin more than it wants to love God, if I'm really honest. 
And he not only forgives me for the past and present sins that I have done and am doing, he changes me so that I become a less sinful person. That is an internal miracle. It is not only justification externally, it is also transformation internally, or as the Bible puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18, if anyone is in Christ, that's the New Testament way of saying if you're a Christian, if you're saved, then he is a new creature, a brand new creation. That's the Apostle Paul talking. Where did he get that idea? Where did he get that language? He got it by reading Ezekiel and seeing how God was going to transform a valley of dry bones into a whole new people, just like he made us in Genesis. Paul gets it. God is changing us. He's not just forgiving us, although thank God he's doing that. When you come to faith in Christ, he is changing us. Jesus is the giver of a heart that treasures God's glory rightly, but you know what? He is also the very embodiment of God's glory at the same time. John chapter 1, verse 14 says, the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father. All of that's in reference to Jesus. And speaking of Jesus Christ, later on, Colossians chapter 1, verse 19 says, for in him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Everything that makes God, God was in Christ, including God's glory. He is the embodiment of the glory of God. He is the one we are to see valuable and to treasure and to love above all else. And he is also the one who gives us the heart that can do that. So if Ezekiel tells us anything, it tells us that all of this glorying, uh, valuing God's glory rightly stuff is a work of Christ. It's a work of Christ. This is not something that we as people dig down deep and try harder to to make ourselves like more. This is something we fall down hard on our knees and plead with God to do in us. Do you see the difference? Your eternity hangs on seeing the difference. Treasuring God's glory is not something we try harder to do on our own. It is something we fall down on our knees and plead with God to transform our hearts that we might see rightly, or as it is said elsewhere in the Bible, to take the blinders off our eyes so that we see God and his glory clearly. That is the new heart that the Savior promises to give. We'll end this way. Friends, as we read Ezekiel, church, don't let this series just be informative. Um, there's a lot going on in this book. It's a little less familiar to us than some other books of the Bible, so it's going to be very informative, and that's good. That's good. It should be. Just don't let it be only or merely informative. I pray it will be much more. If we could close with Psalm 119, verse 18, which says, Open my eyes. This is a prayer to God. Open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of your law. The written word of God. Would you open my eyes, God, so that I can see beautiful things here? That's not something I dig down for. That is something I drop down hard on my knees and I pray for. It's a good prayer for us. Let's pray that God would open our eyes to see his infinite worth as ultimately beautiful, even in the pages of this colorful and sometimes bizarre book, to find there Christ, our Savior, King, and to be moved even devastated by the sheer awe-inspiring spectacle of his power, his glory, his majesty, his grace, and his love. 
Let's address this, God, together. Father, we come before you understanding that we don't understand you. And maybe the beginning of wisdom is to acknowledge that that's true, because it is. Unfortunately, you're not shocked, you're not put off by that. You tell us in your word that we as people don't understand you. And we know that having not been understood, you would be very right to just be done with us. But that's not who you are. That's not who you are. You don't just be done with us. You instead come and you say, I'm going to give you a new heart. And so, Jesus, I want to pray for that work of transformation in my own life to continue. As we rely on you for the forgiveness of our sins because you died on the cross in our place, would we also, God, rely on you to give us the kind of heart that will not be captivated by building our little kingdoms here in this world, but will be just excelling at exalting who you are and captivated by lifting your name up from the inside out that you would transform us to love you and glorify you. And even as we sing now, God, do that work in us. If we sing as a prayer, God, have your way in us and change us that we might reflect your glory as Ezekiel did, as Moses did, as you want this church to. In Christ's name we pray and for his glory. Amen.